From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Before the world knew the wonders of Yellowstone, it seemed otherworldly when people tried to describe it. And who would have believed it, right? I mean, cliffs made of glass and water exploding from the ground and boiling mud pots. I mean, it seemed just completely insane. We'll talk about how Yellowstone, America's first national park, represents a contradiction in government policy after the Civil War. Then we're heading into the New Year's weekend, and one of the hottest trends in drinking right now is not drinking. We'll get a taste of the so-called mocktails movement. If somebody's enjoying what they want to enjoy, they're not going to feel like they're being left out. And I think that's one of the cool parts about where we're at nowadays is that you actually have a lot of selection that you didn't have before. Your old or unwanted car still has value. Donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll help free up some space in your garage or driveway, and you'll help CPR bring the programs you value to listeners across the state. Any make, any condition, we'll take it. Start the safe and easy car donation process and find answers to your donation questions at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Was Yellowstone where hell bubbled up? That was the rumor floating around 150 years ago until a band of explorers conducted a scientific survey. Not long after, Yellowstone became the world's first national park, with indigenous people being driven out. Author Megan Kate Nelson tells the story in her new book, Saving Yellowstone. It was just named one of the 10 best history books of 2022 by Smithsonian Magazine. She spoke with Ryan Warner in July. Let's go back 150 years or so when Congress commissions a scientific expedition to Yellowstone, led by a prominent surveyor and scientist named Ferdinand Hayden. Uh, He takes about three dozen men and sets off from Ogden, Utah in 1871. Let me have you read this description of what they saw as they arrived. The path pitched more steeply upward. As the expedition came over the crest, the men stopped, one by one. Before them rose a huge complex of hot springs, 300 feet high and at least half a mile wide. It looked like a frozen waterfall. It was bright white in places because, as the scientists on Hayden's team would determine later, it was made of travertine, a calcium carbonate rock that is the primary compound in limestone. Hot water, forced to the surface at the top of the structure, made its way down through hundreds of oval pools, pausing briefly in one before dropping to the next. The bacteria and algae living within the pools stained them bright pink, yellow, brown, or red. After gazing upon this marvel, the leader of the 2nd Cavalry Escort, Captain George Taylor, reached into his pocket, groping for his diary so he could record his first impressions. He had left it with the pack train, however, so all he could do was stare. After a moment, Hayden turned to Taylor. I have traveled all over the world, he told the soldier. I have been exploring 17 years. I thought I had viewed all the great wonders, Hayden paused, but all sink into insignificance compared with this. Oh, 
I, I get the impression from that passage that they might have thought this was an otherworldly place. Absolutely. I mean, there were so many rumors about Yellowstone. They referred to it as the Plutonic region. There was a lot of reportage that maybe it was where hell bubbled up. And this was an exciting moment, particularly for Hayden, because no white man had ever seen or reported on this particular feature of Yellowstone, which we now know of as Mammoth Hot Springs, but which they called the White Mountain. And so for him, this was one place in Yellowstone where he was really going to make his mark. And for a man as ambitious as Hayden, uh, that was an important moment. You use this adjective plutonic, meaning of or related to Pluto. In other yeah. words, yeah, in otherworldly terms. But of course, this region was not entirely unknown. Uh, who all had been there before the white man? Well, of course, indigenous peoples had been in and through Yellowstone for thousands of years. Uh, peoples including uh, the Crow and the Shoshone and the Bannock, the Lakota peoples, the Nez Perce from the West um, and the Northern Shoshone. And they had used it as a thoroughfare. They had used it as a ceremonial ground, as a hunting ground, basically in any way that you could use a landscape to subsist yourself. So indigenous peoples had known about Yellowstone. They claimed Yellowstone. It was not given over to one indigenous nation specifically, but a kind of communal shared space. Of course, they all knew about it. And some white trappers um, early in the 19th century also had discovered it, but no one believed any of their tales because, you know, people believed trappers and, and scouts to be just inveterate liars, that oh. they were just telling tall tales around the fire. And, and who would have believed it, right? I mean, cliffs made of glass and water exploding from the ground and boiling mud pots. I mean, it seemed just completely insane. <laughs> Um, this expedition happens at a really pivotal time in the United States, and that's the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. It's just plain fascinating to me that you've decided to focus on the West in Reconstruction because I think of it as such a, a Southern experience. Why is this expedition reflective of Reconstruction, maybe in a way that we wouldn't normally associate with it? Yeah, this was one of the driving questions for me in my research, because once I, I decided to write about Yellowstone for its 150th anniversary, I thought, well, wait a minute, all of this exploration is happening and the preservation of Yellowstone is happening in 1871-72, which is this pivotal moment in Reconstruction. And no one ever talks about that, right? I mean, uh, when we talk about Reconstruction, if we talk about it at all, we are talking about the South uh, for good reason, because, you know, the nation is trying to come back together after four years of really destructive warfare and huge loss of life. And the major part of that project was bringing the former Confederate states back into the Union and making sure that its four million newly emancipated Black Americans could actually claim their new citizenship rights and really transition to a life in freedom. But the federal government was just as invested in controlling the West during Reconstruction as they were in controlling the South. And that's what really interested me uh, in looking at Yellowstone was here's this new place where we can get a real new angle of vision on this moment in our history when the federal government is really testing the reach of its power mm. um, all across the nation and trying to bring the country back together. But isn't there an inherent tension then in the freeing of 
enslaved people in the South. And yet, uh, of course, the subjugation of indigenous people in the West, it's like these, this tension in the country. Absolutely. And I think this is the tension that we find today so difficult to reconcile, right? Because we think, oh, well, a political party that is invested in protecting Black civil rights and intent upon really using the power of the federal government to protect those rights if the states fail in that respect, surely they wouldn't turn around and launch campaigns against Native people and try to take their land from them, right? This strikes us as completely contradictory. But in that moment, Republicans who, and it's important to note that the parties were kind of switched at this point from how we know them today. So Republicans uh, were very much invested in the power of the federal government. Uh, They were, at least for a short amount of time, devoted to racial justice in certain aspects. And They were, like most white Americans, um, completely convinced that Native peoples, first of all, were not citizens and probably could never be citizens, and that they were standing in the way of American progress. They were standing in the way of the American dream, which they believe now belong to both white and Black Americans, Mm. right? So they did not see any kind of contradiction in fighting for Black rights, but then also seeking to remove Native people from their homelands, put them on reservations, and then shrink the size of those reservations in order to sell land to both white and Black settlers. So Yellowstone, to some extent, represents destiny, perhaps manifest destiny. Does the Hayden Expedition go to Yellowstone with the notion of preserving it, of, of you know, making it a park? Is all that notion of conservation baked into the expedition? Not really, and not from the beginning. I mean, Hayden was definitely a scientist and explorer. uh, And what surveys were, were these expeditions that were federally funded. And they would go out to certain parts of the country that had not yet been mapped. And they would measure distances, they would test water, they would look at resources, they would produce agricultural reports. And the goal of these surveys was really to figure out how this land could best be used. Mm. And so Hayden had that kind of practical job, and that was in fact in his instructions from the Department of the Interior, that he was supposed to figure out uh, how this land could be developed, not only what was in Yellowstone, but if any of it could be mined, um, you know, ranched or farmed. And then he had that other goal in mind, which was to bring Yellowstone really fully into the American scientific arena of knowledge um, so that they could see what was there and fit it into a kind of larger notion of both North America's and then the world's larger geo history. Hmm. Um, So he was interested in the science, but his expedition did not have a conservation purpose uh, in the beginning. Uh, visiting Yellowstone is not great on their boots, is it? <laughs> no, especially when you fall in, which Hayden actually did. Uh, at one point in the mud volcano region, uh, he broke through the surface and pretty instantly uh, that geothermal feature really ate up uh, his boots and he ended up walking barefoot back to camp with his pieces of his boots in his hand. I, I appreciate that the the mission was was scientific. Um, it was cartographic. I think that's the term. It was also artistic. 
artists, mm. is it artists plural on the Hayden expedition to Yellowstone? Yes, absolutely. And this is one of, you know, Hayden was a really great manager of men and leader of the expedition. But one of his other talents is he absolutely understood how important visual images are Hmm. to communicating to us what's out there kind of in the landscape. And so he had always uh, brought artists along on his surveys with him. In the years before his trip to Yellowstone, he had become friends with William Henry Jackson, a photographer. And photographs were important, right, because they represented reality. And so he needed Jackson's photos to communicate to all Americans and especially congressmen that they had actually been to Yellowstone and they had seen these things and that they were real. But he also believed in the power of painting and illustration. And so he had two other artists, Henry Elliott, uh, who did these kind of big, long um, sketches of the landscapes and mountain ranges. And then also Thomas Moran, who was sent out to the Hayden survey, uh, actually by Jay Cook and the folks at Scribner's Monthly. Jay Cook was an investment banker uh, who was raising money for the Northern Pacific Railroad. And Mm. he too believed in the power of images in advertising. And so he sent Thomas Moran, who was a kind of new painter on the scene in Philadelphia, uh, but who really ended up making his mark in Yellowstone with the production, especially of an enormous canvas, eight feet by 12 feet, um, the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, which if uh, your listeners have ever seen an image, a painted image of Yellowstone, that's probably it. Uh, It's the lower falls of the Yellowstone. But of course, this notion of like um, imagery to sell potential tourists and investors on the railroad is a a well-told story in the West and true of much of Colorado in addition to Yellowstone. Ryan's conversation with author and historian Megan Kate Nelson continues after a break. They spoke in July about her book, Saving Yellowstone, which Smithsonian Magazine has named one of the 10 best history books of 2022. Still to come, the impact climate change is already having on this American treasure. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. The night her home burned in the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history, Jessica Carson of Louisville committed to rebuilding. It's been a year. (laughs) Not quite sure how we got here, but worked with a lot of great people, and the community's just been amazing. I'm Joe Wirtz from the CPR Climate Team. Since last year's devastating Marshall Fire, CPR News has looked at the cause and the damage done. After months of cleanup, the community is rebuilding. Listen to CPR News and come to CPR.org as the story continues. Back now to our interview from July with historian and author Megan Kate Nelson. In Saving Yellowstone, she writes about an early scientific expedition to the region and its lasting impact on the indigenous people who shared the area. She spoke with Ryan Warner. What were some of the key scientific discoveries? Like, what what does the Hayden Expedition truly add to our understanding of the Earth? Well, they brought back about 45 boxes of specimens. So their scientific study was really quite broad. They did manage to prove that Yellowstone was a caldera, um, a volcanic basin. This is the kind of super volcano that you've probably all heard about that we're all a little worried about. (laughs) Is it going to explode anytime soon? Uh, Scientists don't think so, but... Oh, Megan, I have so much else to worry about right now. You've just (laughs) just added to the list. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know we live in dark times. <laughs> we live in dark times. Um, yes. So they definitively proved that that was the origin of Yellowstone and that the whole basin was created in this combination of that volcanic activity and also the power of erosion. And this is a really big debate at the time, sort of how does the earth get formed? Uh, and then they collected all kinds of other specimens, um, minerals, plants, uh, the skins of birds and animals. And they were really trying to create a picture of animal life and botanical life of water resources in the West. So they suspected that Yellowstone was probably the largest geothermal field in the world, and they were correct. They were correct. On that yes, uh, by far, yes. Um, and they knew there were going to be uh, just so many more important scientific studies uh, to be run in Yellowstone. And that turned out to be true as well. I mean, it's one of the most fertile grounds for scientists today who Still are seeking today. to understand not only these issues of geology and geothermal power, but also climate change. On the subject of geology, this also turns out to be a seismic shift uh, in, the, in the history of Native Americans in this country and how, frankly, they are treated by the U.S. government. Can you talk to the institutionalization of reservation life at this point? And maybe mm -hmm. how it plays in, frankly, to the battle for Yellowstone or the sense of, you know, who it belongs to. Absolutely. I thought it was really interesting when I found out in my research that basically in the same session that Congress gave Ferdinand Hayden $40,000 to go to Yellowstone, which was a lot of money in that time, uh, they passed a rider to an Indian Appropriations Act, basically saying that they were not going to engage in any treaty making with indigenous peoples from that point forward, which meant they were not going to recognize their sovereignty as Indian nations, as separate peoples with whom they could make a treaty. Mm. They would attempt to make peace agreements, but from this point forward, in order to push native people onto reservations, the US government was going to maybe make a, an effort at diplomacy, but then really quickly follow that with US military action. And that was a shift, that was something new. The US government had been making treaties first, for the most part, with native peoples. Uh, they were attempting to make treaties with them in order to bring peace to the West, in order to make that place more amenable to white settlement. Often those treaties either did not get ratified or both native people and the federal government broke them at various points and the situation devolved into violence anyway. But this was a real change in the way that the US government uh, was proposing to engage with native peoples from this point on. So Sitting Bull uh, comes into the story of Yellowstone because he emerges during this period as one of the primary voices among the Lakota peoples uh, for self-determination and Indian sovereignty and resistance against not only the US government, but also corporations, uh, particularly railroad builders like Jay Cook. So Sitting Bull's territory, Lakota territory, extended from the Missouri River to the Yellowstone Basin. And 
They really began to assert themselves under Sitting Bull's leadership in the early 1870s as Jay Cook was sending Northern Pacific surveyors out uh, to lay down track, to survey a route, um, the best route from the Great Lakes to the Pacific Coast. And they were having none of it. And Sitting Bull engaged in a number of different uh, responses to these efforts, including diplomacy and surveillance, but also attacks on Northern Pacific surveyors and their U.S. Army uh, protective details. This became an interesting story to me because it was part of Jay Cook's effort uh, and his engagement with Yellowstone to kind of promote it as a national park in order to pr promote his railroad. But he completely misread the situation uh, in the greater Yellowstone region and really did not anticipate any of this pushback from Sitting Bull and his people. And what I argue in the book is that this moment is really the beginning of the road to the Battle of Little Bighorn or Greasy Grass in 1876, that this is where Sitting Bull really emerges and starts to bring together an alliance of other Lakota peoples and Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples. You invoked climate change a bit earlier. And I think, of course, of the tragedy that has befallen Yellowstone recently, floods that have closed parts of the park, decimated some of the landscape. In a recent article, I think in Smithsonian, uh, you cite a study that shows climate change will impact Yellowstone pretty heavily. Uh, how so? Yes, indeed. I mean, and this is what is interesting, too, when we talk about the legacy of this moment and the passage of the Yellowstone Act in 1872, uh, which saved more than one million acres and created the first national park in the world. What that did is it preserved this kind of central core of the Yellowstone Basin. Um, and around that, the federal government then saved and built upon that area, which is now known as the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, which is you know, the 2.2 million acres of the park with surrounding national forest land. And scientists have been able to use this place, which is one of the only intact temperate zone climates in the world, in order to do a lot of climate change studies. So this huge study came out uh, last summer. And what they have found is that with the warming trends that we're seeing, even with mitigation efforts in that region and in the United States and North America, uh, we're going to continue to see warmer and warmer temperatures. Uh, and what this means for places like Yellowstone is we're going to see uh, snow only at higher elevations, more rain at lower elevations, and then snowpack melting earlier, along with more rain in the spring. And this is exactly what we saw uh, this past May and June uh, with a very warm early June. And then the combination of spring rains plus an atmospheric river situation, which we've been seeing more and more in the Mountain West and the Pacific Northwest. And all of that rain came down so quickly on snowpack that was already melting. The rivers in Yellowstone were already high mm. and it created this massive flooding event, which Today, I think people were saying it was maybe a 500-year flood, um, but what the climate study suggests is that we're actually going to see more of these. Um, so we're going to see this kind of glut of rain in the spring, but then increasing dryness through the rest of the year and a drought uh, through the rest of the year. And I know that Colorado residents are familiar uh, with this particular kind of shift. Well, before we go... We mentioned in the introduction that you grew up here in Colorado, attended Littleton High School in the Denver mm -hmm. suburbs. You spoke recently about your book, 
at the Tattered Cover. And we were actually in the audience for that when you shouted out one of your English teachers. Who was there? Marlis Farrell. And after the event, I asked her about you as a student. And, <laughs> and she recalled this moment. She and some other kids were helping the class review for a major exam, and they created a Jeopardy format that was hilarious. I mean, she always had a great sense of humor in everything that she did, even though she was very academic and and very scholarly in her analysis of literature and characters and so forth. She loved posing questions to engage an audience and to create fun. This made me wonder if you think there's enough room in the study of history for humor. <laughs> oh, well, I certainly hope so. That's a, that's such a wonderful thing for her to say. I love Mrs. Farrell. Yes, the, the book is dedicated to her and to Anne Moore, who is my history teacher at Littleton High School. And those two women really encouraged me in my writing and my thinking. And yes, and they are both extremely funny individuals as oh. well, which I, which I enjoy. So I like it when my historical figures, the people I'm writing about are funny, that that allows me to engage with them and their senses of humor. It is hard though, to make any kind of jokes about very serious topics, issues of racial justice and the sort of darker histories of places we might want to take a little bit more lightly. But I also think that we can understand the really complex and interesting histories of places like Yellowstone and continue to enjoy them. I know now all about these dark and complicated elements of Yellowstone's history, and yet I go there and I still revel in it. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Historian Megan Kate Nelson's latest book is Saving Yellowstone. Smithsonian Magazine has named it one of the 10 best history books of 2022. She spoke with Ryan Warner in July. Nelson was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her earlier release, The Three-Cornered War. She grew up in Littleton. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. Heading into the New Year's weekend, one of the hottest trends right now is not drinking. We'll get a taste of the mocktail movement. I'm Andrea Dukakis. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Fixing an entire education system isn't simple. It's like, oh, it's not equity, it's CRT. And it's like, do you even know what is CRT? They can't tell you a thing, but they can tell you that it's racist. I'm Joe Erickson, and Systemic from Colorado Public Radio is back for season two, asking hard questions about the American education system. Systemic returns January 10th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're heading into the New Year's weekend, and one of the hottest trends in drinking these days happens to be not drinking alcohol, that is. Non-alcoholic brews were featured at the Great American Beer Fest in October, and the Sober Curious movement has been building for some years now. Adam Hodak is the new CEO of Awake Denver, which opened as the city's first sober bar in 2020. It's closed temporarily while his team looks for a new space. 
Chandra Thomas-Whitfield met up with him last month along with a local mocktails fan at Adam's other restaurant, The L on Broadway. So we're going to taste some drinks you created and also get your picks for off-the-shelf products, things people can buy at grocery stores or specialty stores. This is especially important at this time of year as we head into the holidays with lots of parties and social gatherings. Can you start by explaining how this industry has changed over the past few years? How's the landscape different now in terms of what's available compared with just a few years ago? The main difference you're going to see is back in the day, a couple years ago, it was either you were either sober or you drank. Mm -hmm. And if all of a sudden you chose to not have a drink, you know, is something wrong? Are you sick? Are you pregnant? You know, there's this stigma attached to Mm non-drinking, whereas many other vices in this world, if you say no to them, your friends don't go, what's wrong with you? And what you're starting to see now, I do like, you know, the sober curious movement, things like that. I think just general well-being is more or less sort of where it's coming from. It's the same way that 10 years ago, there, were, there was one vegan restaurant in all of Denver, and now there's multiple. It's just sort of that change of, you know, things don't have to always be the way they were. Mm. And so you do see a lot of higher quality products. And I think that's one of the cool parts about where we're at nowadays is that you actually have a a lot of uh, selection that you didn't have before. Wow, you really making me think I need to up my mocktail game learning about all this. Uh, You referenced earlier vegan. Well, my husband is a vegetarian, and in some places I find that they have vegetarian dishes, but they don't really put the detail into it. It's almost (laughs) like, here you go, here's your dish, and that's for you. So do you feel like there's a lot more attention in the detail of the non-alcoholic drink now? Yeah. So I want to say it was probably closer to 2015, but 2017, I remember putting my first sort of spirit-free cocktails together. And uh, I just want to touch on the word mocktail real quick. So I, I, I personally hate that term. I think what more or less that came from was out of kids' drinks on menus that we've seen, you know, growing up over the many, many years. And I've heard the thing, like, we don't mock our guests, so we don't call them mocktails. Like, (laughs) you know, I mean, which I think's, you know, not necessarily hitting the nail on the head. But for me, I really do care about the quality and taking care of that person in front of me. Because if somebody's enjoying what they want to enjoy, they're going to tell their friends, they're going to come back, and they're not going to feel like they're being left out. And I think that's kind of what we'll see here today, or hear here today, uh, is, <laughs> is uh, how you can still get a lot of flavor, a lot of quality, and a lot of care without the alcohol. And I also read uh, the term zero-proof drinks. Yep, zero-proof. is another. That's another good one. I understand that you had your first sober curious period a long time ago. What happened? Yeah, so I, uh, when I was 23, I was diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And so during the time that I was on that medication, I was medically sober, is the best way to put it. I just couldn't drink because of the potential downfalls of what was on my liver. And this was, you know, 17 years ago. So back then, it was a very, very uh, sad state of affairs for NA drinking. You know, there were a couple good NA beers that I would have every now and again, but other than that, it, there really was nothing else back then. And so it's, it's crazy to see the difference now. Well, this is your world, and I'm just curious, uh, who does this movement ap- appeal to? Like, what types of people are you finding are gravitating to this NA movement? 
Well, I think every year it becomes more and more widespread. The same way that eating vegan and vegetarian a couple times a week is becoming more and more widespread. You know, there's the, the people in recovery. That is, you know, sort of the loudest and strongest, you know, voice coming out of sort of the movement. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. And then after that, you have the younger generation is drinking significantly less. In fact, in Japan, it's such a massive movement. Major beverage uh, companies are beginning to create NA-specific drinks for the Gen Zers. So mm. millennials and Gen Zers are, are sort of turning away from it more and more often. And then you just have people that are just generally careful about what they're putting in their body and then how it's making them feel. Mm. Okay, so let's get into the tasting. And I brought along a tasting buddy. This is Alejandra Spray. She helps with the nonprofit called STEM Blazers, which is all about encouraging and supporting high school girls across the metro Denver area to pursue the study of STEM, which, of course, is science, technology, engineering, and math. And, and STEM Blazers has an annual mocktail social fundraiser. So Thank thanks so you. much. And we're going to try drinks for different kinds of sober curious or sober people. So... First, the budget conscious version. What do you have for us? All right, so we're gonna start with a product called Giffard Aperitif. It's NA, it's, it's, it has the word syrup on the label because it's French and that's how they refer to it. But it's, it's wow. very much a, a delicious, lightly bitter aperitif, very similar to Aperol. Already Aperol is a low ABV product, so this is something that kind of falls perfect into that. We're going to use two ounces of the syrup. And is that more of like a fruity? No, it's actually, it's a light bitter. Aperitif. It'd be aperitivo if it was Italian. In French, it's aperitif. Very strong. It does have a a rich flavor. (laughs) Um, Then we're going to use Frexinet, which is a cava producer out of Spain. And this is a quite a lovely sparkling non-alcoholic almost looks like just your typical bottle of white wine yep exactly so it's going to be dry and crisp little orange and then just a touch of soda water all right let's enjoy very traditional aperol spritz we we have to toast (laughs) Mm. Hmm. okay definitely sweetened up a little sweetened up it looks like a holiday drink yeah you can Bright Call red, and, and you got like your. Did you need to explain to anybody what you're drinking? <laughs> no, it looks no, like a great holiday it's drink. Great. Yeah. You know, I just sip in little, a, a little bit at a time to enjoy, and then just give me a, a hit of the, the orange. Even though it's a slice, it just, I took a sip and I just right away tasted the orange slice. So it's interesting how you have different, but it's still there's some flavors they still come across and still strong. Yeah, this is very refreshing, and it's kind of it's the bitter is was strong, but then when you added the other flavors, it kind of lightened up that bitter. Yeah, and it's it it made it much lighter. Yeah, absolutely, um, and it yeah it, it still does stay in that realm of of a, of a party. And don't feel weird about finishing these because there's no oh, alcohol in them. I actually <laughs> am enjoying this really. All right, Adam. So can you make me one of your favorite NA drinks? Yeah, absolutely. I'll. Uh, 
I'll do like a pineapple margarita take with a, a product called Jalisco 55. Wait a minute. I recognize that name, Jalisco. That's my hometown. I was born in Jalisco. That's one of the states in Mexico and Guadalajara, where most of the tequila comes from. So that's interesting to know there's a non-alcoholic margarita-like mix out there with the name of Jalisco. And what's interesting is the, the label says spiritless. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but not flavorless. No, definitely not flavorless. And I think that's the key is you want that flavor. You still want something fun and interesting to drink, just not alcohol. Wow, I see the tahini on the rim. Yeah, and then I'm going to use a little tahini for the rim. Just, you know, bring in sweet, salty, spicy. So I use two ounces of the Jalisco 55. Mm. And then three quarters of an ounce of fresh lime juice. All right. Half an ounce of pineapple juice. We're smiling over here. <laughs> and then a little bit of uh, agave syrup. No margaritas complete without a little lime. Yes. Cheers. Cheers, it is. Ooh, it's Ooh. got a lot of kick. <laughs> a lot of kick. Well, what is the kick? The tajin? Yeah. Oh, if you're born in Mexico, tajin is part of your <laughs> childhood. So, no. Well, I'm from Louisiana. Does uh, cayenne pepper count? <laughs> you should. So. I can see what this is your favorite. It's really good. And I will say it's very convincing. A margarita, it really looks like you can fool the best Mexican person here with this drink. <laughs> you heard it here first from Ali. <laughs> from the land of uh, where the mariachi and tequila comes from. Ah. Chandra Thomas Whitfield joined by Alejandra Spray to taste test non alcoholic drinks for the holidays at the L restaurant with Adam Hodak, CEO of Awake Denver. When we come back, the evolution of one for one swaps like whiskey, tequila, and beer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. I think there is so much stress and anxiety permeating everybody's experience. It's the pandemic, the political climate, our recognition of the deep racial injustice within our country, our communities, our systems and structures, that as we work to address those things, we need to also find opportunities to provide a sense of stability and some things that you can count on. Our day-to-day -day work providing information that people can count on being grounded in facts is one of the most important things that we do. And the other thing is we recognize it's really important to provide moments of joy and moments of discovery. The impact of that is we hope that people are inspired and engaged. Support CPR in 2023 and beyond at CPR.org. And thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Heading into the New Year's weekend, we're getting a taste today of the Sober Curious Movement, which celebrates with non-alcoholic drinks. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield met Adam Hodak, the CEO of Awake Denver. She was joined by Alejandra Spray at the El Restaurant in November. 
So Adam, like, what's your thoughts on how like the whiskey type or tequila type products are progressing in terms of taste? The one for ones for the aperitifs and the amaros and and sort of the the different liqueurs are very very close to their full spirit sort mm. of cousins. With the straight spirits, the one for ones, the flavor profile isn't necessarily for sipping. They're for mixing because then when you mix it, you hit those notes that they're trying to put into that product. So right now, and and we're not sure what will happen in the next five years, right? But right now there's not, say, a bourbon, not a spirit-free bourbon that you're going to sit and sip and go, my goodness, how is that not, you know, a Kentucky bourbon? They're not there yet. However, they do have oak-flavored, spirit-free products that you can mix into cocktails that would be a whiskey cocktail. And that's where you're going to hit on those flavor profiles and create something that's got a greater depth of flavor as opposed to something that's just sort of, you know, juice in a glass or whatever. Yeah, it's been interesting. I I just see so many parallels to the vegan slash vegetarian world because, you know, there are people who want a completely like vegetable kind of dish. And then there are people who actually want to replicate the sense of eating meat or certain, you know, chicken and things like that. So would you say there are kind of two groups in this movement, like some people who want to actually replicate the flavor and experience of drinking alcohol and those who, you know, maybe it's triggering for them or maybe they just want to try something completely different that does not remind them of any particular alcohol that they've had. Yeah, and that's, you're, you're really touching on it. There is that part of the sober community that would get triggered by certain products mm. that just are just too close for them. It is interesting to be conscious about having both offerings that just sort of don't fall into that category. Like they don't taste like, you know, a tequila soda or something like that. But then there's the ones that that do because, you know, you get both types of, of drinkers. And so it's trying to appeal to that broader sense and just being conscious and caring. So if a person were trying to specifically avoid anything that does remind them or is very closely resembled to alcohol, how would you know what to order? Like, or is there a way to distinguish like types of NA products? The best place to start for people would be seeing things that, for example, here are two very specific products that mm-hmm. are that really don't fall into the same category as like an NA gin or something like this. This is Wilderton. It's non-alcoholic botanical spirit. It has some similarities to some full spirit products, but not in the sense of what is going to make you go, oh my goodness, this tastes like anything I'm used to drinking. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one called the Pathfinder. It's a hemp and root, NA, spiritless, packed full of flavor. And and it's about looking for those things, the nootropics. Those are products that aren't trying to be that tequila, that gin. And that's where most people that are trying to stay away from something but want a lot of flavor, that's where you'll find yourself going. All right, so Ali, we have to try these two products. And we always toast. Toast. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, that's an interesting... I just, like Adam said, by themselves are not really that... That you will put well, it and come. enjoy it like a shot. 
like when you they do, come together. It, it's the, the that's combination. The, yeah. You know, Allie, you mentioned that your daughter, Nicole, loves to make mocktails or yes. non-alcoholic drinks. And um, and you kind of, enjoy, it's kind of been like a bonding thing for you all to make drinks together. It's, it's our thing. So for dinner, obviously, she cannot drink. Uh, she's not in drinking age. So she will mix uh, soda water and cranberry juice, and then she puts a cherry, and it's our drink. So <laughs> before dinner, she's like, do you want to split our drink? And I say, yes. Yeah. So she's always in charge of mixing our drink, and we feel fancy. I also like what Adam was talking about, how the flavors are evolving. In Mexico, we have, and during Christmas, we have drinks based on fruits, and it's a punch, and there's a lot of cloves, cinnamon on it. So it's, I think it's something that it has been there, but people have not really recognized them as non-alcoholic drinks, too. I think that's kind of what this is also about. It's, it's the holiday season, which is why we're talking about this, but it's really about bonding and spending time with people and having a good time, and you should not have to be excluded if you don't drink. So really what you're describing with your daughter is really what this is about. It's about people wanting to participate. It's the memories for me, uh, as she's thinking of moving out for college, is the memory that I will have that I, every time I see a soda water and cranberries, it's our thing together, right? Exactly, and as uh, we talked about, you know, a lot of cultures have non-alcoholic drinks that are very flavorful and fun and festive, and you can partake in those during the holiday season. And also, um, I understand there's a ready-to-drink mocktails market as well. You'll find a lot of stuff in can. A lot of the canned ones have CBD in them to try to give you, you know, some sort of feeling out of it. And just reading the labels will give you an idea of what you're about to get into. So, Adam, what are your favorite non-alcoholic beers? Yeah, so this is the one non-alcoholic drinking area that is probably the best place to find flavor, consistency, quality across the board. So I'm going to take you through three different styles of NA beers. And I traditionally am a IPA drinker. In my everyday life, if I'm having a beer, it's going to be traditionally an IPA. However, when it comes to non-alcoholic beers, which I drink quite often, I'm much more of a, a light Pilsner drinker or a wheat beer drinker. The IPAs, let's just say that they're not quite as good as, in my opinion, as the wheats and the Pilsners. So the first beer I'm pouring for you two is Heineken 00, 0.0% alcohol. I just read a funny article from a woman in Australia who went to have, buy an NA six pack of beer, didn't have her ID on her, and couldn't get a 0.0% alcohol beer. The reason that you get carded for these is because these are marketed towards adults as a 21 plus beverage. Really? So yeah, you, without, without any alcohol, it's because of the, how the marketing works, not the fact that there's actually any alcohol in it. I would say it would take the traditional beer drinker, three Heineken zero zeros, to recognize there's no alcohol in it because <laughs> they wouldn't have been feeling anything after the third. But anyways, I think this is a very, very good uh, one for one. And it's in the signature green bottle. I mean, it's <laughs> absolutely. And I'll tell you, zero Heineken zero zero has been so successful that Budweiser has now released a zero zero, and so has Stella. And they're all in this world, very very good. They even have that classic kind of skunky smell that you're that you're used to having. So, anyways, the next is called Surya cereal. 
C-E-R-I-A. Um, it was actually started by the person that produced Blue Moon. This is a wheat beer, non-alcoholic. Allie? So I have a question for those people that have some allergies and celiac, celiac disease. How does these drinks, because they still might have some of those components that triggers their allergies, correct? I do believe there are a couple gluten-reduced NA beers. So what do you think, Ellie? Are you a big beer drinker? Not at all, even if it's not alcoholic. <laughs> Pass. I have to, I I have to my, admit that. But. I stay with my wannabe margarita with tajin. But the, the nice thing is, is even though you aren't beer drinkers, you can still see that these are still full-flavored. Well, Allie, thanks so much for joining me today. You are an awesome taster, co-taster, co-pilot, wingman, all of that. And shout out to your 17-year-old daughter, Nicole, for getting you into this movement. (laughs) Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you, Adam. And thank you for educating us in what is not just a movement, but it's what is going to be also a lifestyle for some people, right? Regardless of their motives, but if you are pregnant or it's in your health-wise, but it's also going to be more how people have more options to how they enjoy and socialize with their friends. Now, that was Alejandra Spray. She is on the executive board for a Colorado nonprofit known as STEM Blazers, which encourages and supports high school girls in the metro Denver area to pursue the study of STEM, which, of course, is science, technology, engineering, and math. STEM Blazers holds an annual mocktails social fundraiser, and you may learn more about the organization and the work that they do at stemblazers.org. Allie and I were here today with Adam Hodak, the new CEO of Awake Denver, which opened as the city's first sober bar in 2020. It's closed temporarily right now while they look for a new space. So we met up at Adam's other restaurant, The L, on Broadway, get his recipes and see his picks for off-the-shelf products at CPR.org. That's my colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield taste-testing non-alcoholic drinks for the holidays. Tomorrow on Colorado Matters, as the year draws to a close, we remember some of the noted Coloradans we lost in 2022, like former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, world-renowned extreme skier and mountaineer Hillary Nelson, and jazz great Ron Miles. go to school and you learn all these theories, you learn all these techniques, you know, this scale goes with this chord and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, you've got to let all that go when it comes time to make music, if you want to let the music be able to be all that it can be, because otherwise you're limiting it to your own reality. And I want to open it up beyond that. And so the kind of mystery of it is scary, but you have the possibility of going beyond what you know. If that isn't a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. Yeah. Jazz great Ron Miles, one of the Coloradans we lost in 2022. Join us as we reflect in a special Colorado Matters tomorrow. Thanks for joining us today and to the entire team who makes this show possible. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. 
Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Woodfield, Ryan Warner, and I'm Andrea Dukakis. You're with CPR News and KRCC.